Would you open your Bibles to um, John chapter 15? I don't know if you realize what you're about to experience today, so I want to call your attention to it. Long ago, a couple thousand years ago, God performed an incredible miracle. He spoke through Balaam's ass. Today, before your very eyes, that is going to be repeated. <laughs> Kathy is getting up. She's the visual aid. You didn't think I was talking about myself, did you? What's this peanut gallery? and have to sit in the back. I really mean that, though. I was sitting here praying while we sang. I just said, Father, I, I don't want to give the people of God my mind or my heart. I want to simply connect to the vine and let you minister through them, through me to them by the power of your Spirit. That the Spirit that is within me would touch the Spirit that is within you and there would be reproduction kind after kind. That's what it's all about, John 3, right? We reproduce after our own kind. And I don't want to produce flesh. I want spirit producing spirit. So, I said, Father, I just present myself as a living sacrifice. And let there be just spirit to spirit. So be it. In Jesus' name. Let's open our Bibles to John 15. Now, listen, I got a little note this week. I thought it was really cute. I'll change it just a little bit because it'll work a little better. A uh, guy driving down the road on a motorcycle. And he was taking a cross-country tour. And he went through Arkansas. Anybody here from Arkansas? Okay, good. You'll know what I mean. Um, <laughs> he was driving through and... He was getting hit with the bugs and the wind and everything, and he had a leather jacket on, but the zipper on the leather jacket was broken. So he took the leather jacket and he turned it around the other way so that, you know, the wind and the bugs and everything wouldn't get him. Well, he went around a turn and he lost, lost it, and the bike had a terrible accident, and the farmer came out that lived there in Arkansas, and he checked the man, he ran back to his house, and he called the police to tell him what happened, and the police asked him, well, sir, are there any signs of life? And the farmer said, well, there was, till I turned his head back around the right way. <laughs> Isn't that a hoot? Are there any signs of life? Well, there was. <laughs> you know, that could very well be a question that we could apply to the passage that we're going to begin to look at today. Are there any signs of life? Only we would uh, want to change the answer. Not that there was, but yeah, you better believe there is signs of life. Because we have the life of God and it can be seen in our own lives. We bear the signs 
of life. Now, I trust you heard what we just said. The passage that we're going to begin. There is no way we're going to be finishing this passage today. The key word there is begin. There's so much that Father has for us in this passage, my friends, that we're going to shift gears and go from second gear down to first gear. We may even put it in park and just let the Holy Spirit keep us here for as long as He wants to keep us here. Because it is so rich, it is so very important. And we can say that because of the context. Remember what we've been saying these last several months as we've been in John chapter 13 and then following that the three and a half years of Jesus teaching his disciples is about to come to an end. It's time for Jesus, God the Son, to fulfill that for which he came to earth as a man for. And that is this, that it's time for him to die. When we got to John 13, we said it was less than 18 hours until the cross. It means that there's fewer hours than that because he's going to be arrested in the middle of the night. That understanding, my friends, instantly propels what you and I are about to read on these pages into the forefront. I don't like to say things like this because we can lose our perspective, but we're going to say it anyway. I don't necessarily like red letter versions of the Bible. Because of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, which says, The entire book is inspired of God and profitable for reproof and correction, instruction and training in righteousness, right? It means you can go to the book of Haggai, right? And that has something for you. You can go to the law, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and it has something for you, right? We want to be people who, who know the book. The whole word of God is profitable for us. And the red letter version seems many times, you know, it makes us feel that Jesus' words are the most important. No, the whole book is inspired. We want to know the whole book. But having said that, let me say this. If ever there was going to be a red letter version of the Bible, I believe with all my heart that it ought to pick up right here in John 15, 1. Why? Why, my friends? Because of chapter 14, verse 30, what we saw last week. What did he say? I don't have much time to talk with you. The prince of this world is coming even as we speak through Judas. And then chapter 14, verse 31. Well, let's go. Let's go where? Let's go to where the prince of the power of this world is coming for. Let's go to the cross. Following on the heels of a statement like that, my friends, just put yourself there. Walter, you've got hours to live. What would you say to your bride? You'd say the most important things of your heart, wouldn't you? Do you see the context of what we're about to read, my friends? I'll put it this way. We're, we're not talking hours anymore. We're talking minutes. And as it gets closer and closer to the time of death, your heart forgets all the other things that are not so important anymore. And you come to the bottom line. 
That's what Jesus is doing here. It's time for the bottom line. And the bottom line of John chapter 15 is spelled out in one word, my friends. It's relationships. That's it. It's time to die. Let's go. I don't have much time left. Now here's the real issues of life and it's relationships. Fascinating. It's not money. It's not retirement. It's not work. It's relationships. But we're going to see it really clear. In verses 1 through 11, it's our relationship with Jesus. That's where the emphasis is. There's a key word, and the key word is abide. Abide in me. We find it ten times in eleven verses, my friends. What do you think is important to Jesus as he's about to die? That you and I understand what our relationship with him is all about. Fascinating. Soul winning isn't even in here. Well, don't let this tape get out. In verses 12 through 17, the focus then shifts from relationship with Jesus to our relationship with other believers. And again, we know this because we get a key word and the key word is love. And we find the word love four times in six verses, my friends. And so it's because of our union with Jesus, let there become union with the other believers. And let our relationship with other believers be known by one word and let that word be love. Do we really love one another? That's the essence of Jesus' heart. Do you understand what I'm about? And because of your understanding of what I'm about, do you understand what you're to be about? We need to be about loving each other so much that the world stands at attention. Oh, how the church, my friends, has failed in this area. And in the last verses of chapter 15, verses 18 through 27. It's going to be our relationship with the world. And again, we know that because there's going to be another key word. And the key word now is going to be hate. And the word hate is going to be found eight times in ten verses. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He is not allowing us to miss the importance of his final words. It's repetition. There you are, Walter. We'll come back to you. You're dying, Walter. You've got minutes to go, man. What are you going to do? You're going to say the key words over and over and over and over and over and over and over to make sure that Karen gets it. Not because you think that Karen is dense, right? You better say right. <laughs> but because what you're saying is so important, you want to make sure that she gets it. And Jesus is doing the same thing. Abide, 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 abide. Do you get the idea? It's not because he thinks we're dense. Other looking around the room, but you know what I mean. It's not that he thinks he, we're dense, he wants us to get it. And then it's love, 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 love. And then it's what? Thirdly, hate, 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 hate. And the point is that the world is going to hate you. Because of your union with Jesus, it's going to be disunion with the world. And you better be ready for it. Because it's there. The world hated Jesus Christ. And the world will hate the Jesus that's in you. Incredible. He's going to do this by giving us a parable or an allegory. And it's very, very important that we note that. You might want to take your pen, write it in John 15, great big words. It's a parable. I am the true vine, my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears... Bears, bears not fruit, he takes away every branch that bears fruit, he purges that it may bring more fruit. Abide in me, I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of the vine, fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you abide 
unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me, the same brings much fruit. There it is. It's a parable. There's a vine, there's branches. And so you and I. There's a vine, it's Jesus. There's branches, that's us. We better connect to Him or there's no life. It's a parable. I point out to you that we need to note that because whenever you come to a parable or an allegory, the way you interpret it is this way. There's one central theme. That's it. What is a parable? Say it, please. One central theme. You and I have to be very careful and guard against dissecting a parable into parts and then getting doctrine from the parts. That's not the reason a parable is given. My friends, you and I are in grave danger of falling into false teaching when we start dissecting a parable into lots of little parts and getting doctrine from it. That's not its intention. You tell a parable to get what? One central issue. Let me give you an example right from the passage itself. It's a vine that Jesus is now talking about. Well, I've got a bunch of commentaries on my desk, about 18 of them. Right away, guess what they do with verse 1? I am the true vine. What led him to think of that? Hmm. Where did that illustration come from? Well, they were just in the upper room. They just shared communion. So it must have been the communion wine that made him think of the vine. No, no, no. Another commentator says they, they were walking to the garden. And so as they passed the temple gates, there was that golden vine and clusters of grapes on the temple gates. And, and that's what led him to think of it. No, 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 that's not it. It, it. it was when they went outside the gates of the city and there were the natural grapevines. And as they walked across, Jesus looked over and saw those natural grapevines and said, Ah, oh, ah, oh, illustration, time out, guys, stop here, I've got to tell you something else. And they get off on all of these arguments and page after page after page of where was he when he gave this illustration? Where was he? Was he still in the upper room? Well, he said, arise, let's go. So he must not have been in the upper room. But you know what it's like when people say, let's go, especially if you have kids. It takes forever, right? And, and so who, all of this page after page after dis- of discussion, where was he, where was he, where was he? You know what? Who knows and who cares? And we say that because they're missing a the point. The point isn't to sit there and argue about where he was. It's not the issue. Why do that? It it reminds me of John chapter 2. You remember when we went through there? Oh, he made wine. No, no, no. he made grape juice. Jesus would never make wine. People are drinking it. It's not what Jesus would do. He made wine. He made grape juice. Page after page of argument. Get off your soapbox. Get off your soapbox of alcohol and by God, get off your soapbox of grape juice. That's not the issue. And the Christian church has sat here for centuries and debated this stuff and duh, could have had a V8, they missed it. The point was he made it in the water pots. He didn't say bring me wineskins. Those empty wineskins, bring me those jugs that are used for ritualistic ceremonial cleansing, a perversion of a wonderful principle in the Old Testament where the high priest washed himself before that one offering. No! The Jews took it and had these huge water pots because every time you touched something Gentile, you had to get clean, you had to get clean. Oh gosh, i got to get clean, i got to get clean. So a huge 
30-gallon jugs. Man, they did a lot of cleansing. Why? Because there was a lot of defilement. Do you imagine the bondage that that was? Oops, I just rubbed Kathy's dress. It was made by a Gentile. Oh, I just touched Steve's hand and Steve just touched a Gentile shoe or a Gentile fork. The bondage, people. The bondage. What was Jesus doing when he made that stuff in the water pots? He was saying, enough is enough. Hallelujah! That's right! That's what he was doing! No more bondage! No more religious ritual! I'm making brand new stuff in those water pots to declare war on religion! And Colossians 2, there is no day more holy than another. There is no building more holy than another. That's why on Sunday we don't walk into a building to meet God! We meet Him every day! Jesus has desacralized the world! Hallelujah to that. We don't have to talk in King James English anymore. We don't have to wear clothes on Sunday that we don't wear the rest of the week. Glory. Aren't you glad He made what He made in those water pots? Me too. I'm so glad He made wine in those things. I really am. And that's the gospel truth. <laughs> Don't you see, my friends, the issue is not what he made, but where he made it. He was making a statement. And so when we come to John 15, it's not where he said it that's the issue. Don't get lost in all that stuff. It's what he said. And it's who he said it to. And so let's read it real quickly. John 15 I'm the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, He takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, He purges it. Why? So that it may bring forth, say it, more fruit. And then verse 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you. The same will bring forth what? Much fruit. Do you see the progression? Let me put on the overhead for you. No fruit... Giving way to fruit, which gives way to more fruit, which gives way to much fruit. So what is the purpose for which he's giving this parable? That the body of Christ is to be a bunch of fruity people. <laughs> Look around the room and you will see it. That's the purpose for this parable. The parable has a purpose, and the purpose is let there be fruit. And then he also gives, through the illustration of the vine, the process. And the process is abide. So what's he saying? Through the illustration of the vine and the branches, he's let there be fruit. That's the purpose. And the purpose is found in a process, and the process is what? Abide in the vine. Now, instantly, my friends, this is, let me say to you, this is very, very practical. This is going to be a very practical study because we're going to teach you how to become fruitful as a Christian. Isn't that exciting? People have criticized me for years. When are you ever going to tell us what to do? We have come to it. We're going to tell you what to do. And if you have been one of those asking that question, I got news for you before we get into it, you ain't going to be satisfied. 
Because we're going to tell you one thing. And the one thing is what? Abide. Thank you. We may as well dismiss in prayer since you already know it. Not only is it very practical, it's very personal. Instantly the disciples would have known what he was talking about. Because in the Old Testament, Israel was known as the vine of God. That's a fascinating thought. Vines? We, we know about vines. What do they know? Well, in Jeremiah 2.21, God says, I planted you, Israel, as a choice vine. Hosea 10.1, Israel is a luxuriant vine. Psalm 80, thou brought a vine out of Egypt. as Israel. And he transplanted them into Canaan. Perhaps the most obvious one is Isaiah chapter 5. In fact, I want you to turn there. Isaiah chapter 5. There he says, The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel. What does that mean? Let's say it again. Answer this question. What does it mean when it says, The vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel? Well, it means that God, what? Owns Israel. The vineyard of Israel. Now, next question. Why does anyone own a vineyard? So they can say, I own a vineyard? Look at my vineyard over there. No, why do they own a vineyard? To make wine. <laughs> to get the grape, grape juice. I heard that. Get thee behind me. <laughs> Who was that? <laughs> Let's pray for mercy for that poor soul. <laughs> own a vineyard so you can get the crops man to produce the fruit and, and God himself says this in Isaiah look what he says in chapter 5 let's start in verse 1 now will I sing to my well beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard my well beloved has a vineyard in a very fruitful hill and what did God do he dug it and he gathered out the stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the midst of it that was to protect the vineyard from those that would steal the fruit. And he made a wine press for it. He looked for it to bring forth grapes. Stop right there. God took the nation of Israel, a little vine in a foreign land called Egypt. And he transplanted it to Canaan. And he rooted them there. And he gave them the revelation of God. He gave them the prophets. He gave them his written word. And it was all designed so that Israel would become fruitful. So that Israel would be a source of the blessing of God to the rest of the world. Isn't that what God had told Abraham? Abraham's son, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. And out of you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So God took special care on the nation of Israel so that others could taste of God through that nation. Isn't that a glorious truth? That's what it was all about. And the Jews were really proud of who they were. With good reason. Was there anything wrong with Israel being proud of who they were? No. I mean, it's exciting. Look what God has made of us. Don't we do the same thing? We sang of it. God, you call me righteous. You call me trophy of your grace. You call me chosen one. See? Nothing wrong with what Israel did. In fact, they, they really went after it. They made the, vi the vine a symbol of their nation. Like we had the bald eagle, right, for the United States of America. They had the vine. They put it on their coins during the Maccabean period. Isn't that neat? 
They took the vine and they put it over the temple in gold. It's a wonderful thing. They were proud of who they were as the vine of God. There's one problem. They forgot why they were what they were. Turn back, keep your finger there in Isaiah and go back to Deuteronomy. Because you know the crazy thing is God warned them about that. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Look what God says. You are a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God has chosen you, Israel, to be a special people unto himself, above all the people who are upon the face of this earth. Glorious truth. You are a holy, wonderful, glorious people. But watch verse 7. Why? Well, the Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you because you were more in number than any people. You were the fewest of all people. Why then? Well, simply because the Lord loved you. I didn't choose you because of you. I didn't choose you because you were smart, because you were strong, because you were rich, because you were holy. I didn't choose you because of you. I chose you because of me. I chose you because I'm a lover. And I chose to love you. Now, live in the land accordingly. And I'm going to bless your socks off. You can read that. That's in verse 9 all the way through chapter 8. Man, I'll bless you so much, it's incredible. But when you get to chapter 8, verse 11, he makes a statement. And look at this statement, it's incredible. Beware now that you do not forget the Lord thy God and not keep his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes which I command you this day. Be careful. Lest when you have eaten and are full and when your herds multiply and your gold is multiplied and that your heart, verse 14, be lifted up and you forget the Lord thy God. The danger is that in your blessed state, you forget how you got there. You become so enamored with the blessings that you forget the blesser. And this is what the church has done in this modern age. And it's in two veins. We got the church on the right, which is so enamored with the book that we forget the God that wrote the book. And it's a love affair with a word instead of a love affair with a person. It's a love affair with doctrine. By God, we're right. There just isn't any life. On the other side, we become enamored with the gifts. People get upset with that, just the word, just the word, just the word. And they say, well, there's got to be more to this than this the book. And so they become enamored with the gifts. And they're so enamored with the gifts, they forget the giver. And you go to a church and you'll hear it. Do you practice the gifts? What should be the question? Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? That's the issue. He's the life. And there is no life apart from Him. Israel forgot that. What a sad thing. 
What did the Lord say in Isaiah? Go back there. Chapter 5. Man, I took this vineyard and I dug it and I gathered it and I planted it and I built a tower and I made a wine press and I was ready for it to produce grapes and what did it do? Brought forth wild grapes instead. Hosea went on to say it was even worse than that in chapter 10. said the vines were barren. There was nothing there. What a tragedy. Not even bad grapes. I mean, at least let there be bad grapes. But it got to such a state in Israel that it was just totally no grapes. A vineyard that was no vineyard. They were dead before God. Why, my friends? Why were they dead before God? Because they were rooted in themselves instead of God. They were a vine unto themselves. We'll get life out of us. Life out of ourselves. Tragedy. In contrast to that, what does Jesus say in John 15? I am the true vine. Now, very important that you circle the word true. It's alethinos. It is not true as opposed to false. That's not what the word means. What it means is true in terms of a greater reality. Was Israel a reality? Yes. But Jesus is the greater reality. Several examples of this in Scripture. We'll give you just a couple. Remember the manna in the Old Testament? That was bread. What did Jesus do with that in John chapter 6? He took that bread and saw it as an opportunity to talk about himself that he is the true bread. The bread of which people eat, they're satisfied forever. And you've come to experience that, haven't you? John the Baptist was a light. But Jesus is the true light. A greater reality than John was. And so it is here in John 15. Israel was a vine. And the disciples would have understood immediately what he was talking about. Life is not going to be found in the nation of Israel. Life is going to be found in the greater reality that is Jesus himself. My friends, we can take that and apply it. Why is that true? Why is it true, Tim, that when you're rooted in Jesus, you're going to find the greater reality? Because Jesus is rooted in God. And that's because Jesus is God. Isn't that right? In other words, let me put it to you this way. When you attach to Israel, what do you get? You get Israel. Let's run further. You can attach yourself to a church. What do you get? Yeah, you get the church. You can attach yourself to a pastor. What do you get? Get the pastor. Why would anybody want to do that? That's why in this church, we don't talk about how great Quailbridge Bible Church is. We certainly don't talk about how great this pastor is. You all know better than that, right? What do we talk about? Jesus. And we use the book to do it. Right? To lead you to Him. Because He's the issue. He's life. And when you attach to Jesus then, you get God. You get the Zoe life of God. I'll tell you what. If there's one thing you're going to know 
over the years that you're here, you're going to know what the word zoe means. You're going to hear it enough times, you're not going to be able to forget it. It's the word for life. One of the great tragedies of translating is that there are two words for life in the Greek language. One is bios, one is zoe. They both translate life. So we've got to know which one is which. Bios, life in the world. Life out of ourselves. We have a biography. The story of our life. Right? But then there's Zoe. Life as God lives it. And this is all we knew before we came to Christ. But when we come to Christ, this ends. And the Zoe life of God can now flow in and through us. So we now can be faithful. We now can be fruitful. Because His Zoe life flows through us. Life can change now. You can be kind like you've never been kind before. You can be patient like you've never been patient before. And the glory of glories, you can love like you've never loved before. Even when people don't love you back. And here's the biggie, flesh critters. See, God wants you to pay attention. He's beeping you. Even as we speak. I told you this was going to be miraculous today. You know what the hardest things to do, flesh critters, is? To love someone that is unlovely. We can love beautiful people. So you have no problem loving me, right? We can love people that are rich and beautiful, but it's hard to love people that are unlovely. But in a new covenant economy, we can. Because we're given the very love of God Himself. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And this is what the essence of Jesus' final minutes with His disciples is going to center on. How to find life. How to live life. How to be faithful. How to be fruitful. And I tell you, we're in for an incredible treat. And I meant what I said when we started. I don't care how long it takes us to get through this parable. Next week, in fact, I'll let you in on it. We're getting as far as two words. The vine dresser. That's it. Because it is too, too rich. But we're not done. The normal Christian life is a supernatural life. Well, how do we apply that? Well, three, two things. Three things. When you study the Word of God, you're going to find out that there are three vines in Scripture. How many vines? Three. There is the vine of Israel. Don't want to attach to that, do we? We want to attach to the revelation that God gave to Israel because that's going to tell us about the Messiah. And you need a Messiah, right, Phil? That's right. I'll help you with that one. There is the true vine, who is Jesus. But when you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 14, you find that there is another vine, and it's called the vine of the earth. And I believe with all my heart that there is a reason that Jesus used this illustration. 
It is not just practical. It is not just personal. It was very purposeful. In John 14, when Jesus talked about our relationship with God, he used the illustration of a building. Remember? Dwelling places. I go to prepare a dwelling place for you. But that is inorganic, and a building is lifeless. Now when it moves from hours to minutes until he dies, he changes the illustration. Because the saints have got, have got to be warned about this. So he used the illustration of a vine, which is not inorganic, but organic, which is not lifeless, but living. And what is he saying to you and I? He's driving it home. If you want to have life, you've got to go somewhere where there is life. Because like begets like. Kind begets kind. And if you're going to get life, you've got to get it from the one source of life that there is, and that is God himself. What I'm trying to say here is this. Israel's danger is our danger. Israel's demise can be our demise. You and I can become so rooted in ourselves that we forget where life can be found. Israel was rooted in itself. The church historically has been rooted in itself. Just listen to them. We go do for God as if God needs our help. That is me offering to God my life. You know who that is? That's Esau. Excuse me, not Esau. Back up earlier in the Old Testament. Who? Thank you. It's Cain offering up the fruit of his own labors. Look what I've done for you, God. And God's going to put a match to it. And it's going to burn. But even the New Covenant church can slip into this. Rooted in ourselves. We sing of our new identity, my friends. I'm righteous. I'm a saint. I'm holy. I'm a trophy of the grace of God. But I hope you understand that we can be just like the nation of Israel. We can become rooted in ourselves and forget that ours is a derived identity. When that happens, it'll be doctrine with no reality. It's the greatest danger, my friends, is not the enemy, but ourselves. And here's how it'll evidence itself in Christian isolationism. Hey, this is all over the church today. We can't associate with the world. See, we separate. Separate completely from the world. Then who's going to tell them? We're going to become just like the Jews. Bring out those water pots again. Start cleansing ourselves. You don't have to fear the world, my friend. You've got the power of the living God inside you. Go out into the world and let them see Christ. Christian schools. Home school. I'm going to tread lightly here. I'm going to tread hard too. Balance. Balance is the key. My kids, we've homeschooled, and we have Christian schooled, and we have public schooled. They are in Christian school now in high school years, because those are hard years. And we wanted our kids to have that special protection. Why? Because they're learning to be warriors. They are not warriors yet. Some of you as parents say, I may want them in those public schools. That's your choice, that's fine. My point is this. 
be very careful that your goal is not to so protect your kids from the world that they lose sight of their mission to the world. They might get defiled. Be very careful. We'll have to break out those water pots just like Israel had. Be very careful. Careful of Christian isolationism and careful of Christian elitism. We can do this with our doctrine of grace. I just can't associate with other Christians because they don't understand grace like I do. You know what you are if you do that? You're a grace Pharisee. That's the Pharisee of the worst kind. Using the glorious grace of God to be a Pharisee. Be very careful, my friends. Life is the issue. Jesus, let him have the preeminence. Because when he has the preeminence, his life will be provided. And when his life is provided, it can be released through us. With love to a carnal church that has forgotten their God. And with love to a world that does not know God. That's the goal. So be it. Father, I look forward so much to the time that your saints and I are going to be having with you as we fellowship around your word together these next many weeks with the final words of Jesus. As the hour got so close and it was no longer hours but minutes and Jesus moved from talking mind to mind to talking heart to heart. May we, by the power of your Spirit, see the heart of Jesus so that we can gain the life that he's offering to us. So be it. So be it, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Steve, you have visitors?